Hello and welcome to another episode of NCC Audio. And in today's episode, we are going to be speaking with re-recording mixer Alexi Moore from LA. And he has worked in notable projects such as NCIS Los Angeles, and he has mixed over 160 episodes, and other projects such as the new MacGyver, Card Sharks, and a whole bunch more. Hey, Alexi, how's it going? Hey, good, good. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. So, Alexi, can you tell me a little bit about how you got into audio engineering and mixing for television? Like, yeah, and sure, how you absolutely. Learned all about it? So, um, probably it goes back to in high school. A good friend of mine was really into film and whatnot, working on indie films, and he worked at the local cable access channel and was able to check out cameras. And we would muck around and shoot little videos and, and make little, you know, movie shorts and whatnot. And we went to college. He went to Emerson. I went to BU. I wasn't really pursuing it so much in college, but he still was. And we still kind of, you know, got together every so often and worked on these things. And uh, at the end of college, I got a, a degree in philosophy, which wasn't exactly going to get me a job in anything. And he had a degree in television production. And he was moving to L.A., as was my girlfriend at the time, who I met through him at his school. And so I thought to myself, well... Uh, let's see, maybe I'll go along for the ride and see what happens. So I moved out with them to L.A. back in 2002, and the first work I could get for a little while was just working as a computer support tech, because I had a little background in IT. I did that for a while, and I studied audio nights and weekends at UCLA Extension, and so I got a, a certificate in recording engineering and started trying to move into audio as a career, because it was something that seemed to interest me. And through that friend of mine from high school who had at the time been working at a Mac shop that sold computers to post-sound facilities, I was able to get an interview at this place, Larson Studios, that now sadly no longer exists. But at the time, uh, it was in Hollywood and they did sound for TV. And they happened to have an internship program where I was able to come in and intern with them in their transfer department. And so that kind of always seems to be the way in in post-sound is transfer where you're the people who are responsible for everything coming and going from the post-sound studio. So here was a TV post-sound studio with things coming and going, and I got to learn from the bottom up through the transfer department. Eventually, I got hired there. Slowly but surely, I moved from that job to further jobs down up the ladder. Eventually, found my way into re-recording mixing. And years later, here I am. That's what I do. Oh, great. So how many years have you been a re-recording mixer now? Uh, officially, probably a better part of 10 uh, obviously, I did my own little indie projects and whatnot before then. Um, you know, I've got some really kind of low-grade indie films on my IMDb way back in like 0203, but really like TV work started in maybe 2009, 2010, something like that. Oh, that's, that's awesome. And for me, I've been helping my friend with, we've been doing a lot of different indie production films as well. And cool. so I've been the one main audio guy. And so for the past two years, I've been trying to learn about all the different roles that are involved in, you know, whether it's television or film. And so the first day on set, I think it's about a year ago, two years ago now, I just had a boom microphone and a portable recording device. Sure. And so I just tried to get, I didn't know anything about recording dialogue, but I was just thinking, well, I want crisp 
clear, clean dialogue. I want everyone to hear it. So yes. I just got as close as possible to the actor. And I was like, I got to get as close because I know that's what's probably going to make it sound great. And then after that, me, me and my friend, we would go through the film and, um, you know, clean up all the dialogue and make sure it was kind of tedious to line it all up with the picture and with the edit. Yes, it and is. And then we went through and um, had to find all the different sound design we wanted and music and put it together. And then he exported the video of and sent me all of the different audio tracks. And then I went forward and I mixed all the dialogue, EQ'd it, and made it all the dynamic processing. And then I mixed in the music and the sound effects and just made sure all the volume was correct. And I didn't even know like what volume to set it at. I just, I so I just did some quick Googling and I, it was took a while to figure out what the audio levels needed to be, like what's the max peak and the and the average volume for everything. And so maybe we'll get into those little technical details later. But sure. So right now, I'm just I want to learn about all the different roles that uh, that are involved in television or filmmaking, but specifically with you, I want to talk about re-recording mixing. Absolutely. And so right now, can we go through and talk about the different roles for the the sound people for on-location recording, the production people, and then we'll go through and talk about the post-production. Yeah, sure. So uh, in, in production, the, the main roles, the, the first and foremost role is the set recording mixer. So the production sound mixer. Uh, so that's the person whose job it is on set to record the audio from all the different microphones. So from the boom microphones, from the lavaliers, uh, from plant microphones in cars, whatever you might have. Uh, and along with them, you have people who are holding those boom mics on the boom poles, chasing after the actors. Uh, so you got boom operators, usually at least two of them, because you're usually using at least two boom microphones at once. Uh, and you have various audio assistant folks who are helping the set mixer with getting lavalier mics onto the actors and setting up all the wireless transmission packs for those lavalier mics and getting all the cabling sorted out for the boom so that no one's tripping over them and all that good mm -hmm. stuff. Uh, and so all those people are responsible for, like you said, recording the cleanest, clearest possible dialogue they can on set. And that's their number one goal. Everything else that they might capture audio-wise is incidental. We're going to replace it all later anyway <laughs> in almost any case. So if they happen to catch the sound of a door closed or some footsteps or a car driving by, that's fine. But best for them to really focus on those words. And so that's what they're doing. Uh, mm -hmm. Then when they're done, they're, these days everything's getting recorded digitally, obviously. Tape is, is long since gone. So they're recording everything to memory cards or hard drives. And all those files will get sent to the post-production sound team. And so the first step in the process is they will go to the post-picture department. So okay. picture editors. Because they, of course, need to cut the show together. So they're going to take all the audio, match it to the picture, and they're going to edit the show. When they're done editing the show together from, you know, let's say for an hour-long episode of TV, you might have uh, anywhere from 10 to 20 hours, I guess, of camera content to work with. I'm not certain. Uh, once they've cut it all down to the 42, 43 minutes, they'll send that final picture and the audio over to the post-sound team. And so the main liaison there will be the, um, the post-production sound supervisor who might also be called the, uh, the supervising, uh, supervising sound editor. Those two terms are kind of interchangeable. And so that person will receive all those elements and distribute them to the post-sound team who needs them, which will be the dialogue editor, the sound effects editor, and the music editor will get a copy of picture, but they're mainly going to work with the composer. 
Uh, they're gonna do all their jobs, get everything all edited up nice and tidy, add in whatever they need to add, and then they're gonna send all their stuff to me and the folks I work with on the re-recording stage, the dub stage. Uh, as a re-recording mixer, I'm gonna then receive all that stuff and actually mix it all together. So I'm gonna take in all the, the dialogue and music, that's what I'll work with. Uh, when I'm working with a, a partner of mine who does sound effects. Uh, if it's a smaller show, I'll just do all of it myself uh, and we'll mix the whole thing. Then we'll have the client come in for approval and that's usually going to be in television. That's gonna be the executive producer. Uh, for a film, it would be the director. And they'll come in, they'll review the mix with us. Uh, we'll do all their notes, get it to their liking and then we'll output it and off it goes. Wow. That's a lot of steps. That's a lot of working parts, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's a yeah, lot involved. You... And, and in fact, I glossed over a lot for the post sound. I didn't make any mention of ADR or Foley or the composer. There's there's a lot of roles. There are a lot of roles for an audio engineer, for sure. It's just... Tons. How, yeah. So how does an audio engineer who just graduated from audio engineering school and they're out in the real world now, how... What's the best way to learn about all these roles and what they do? Do you know of any resources for that? You know, I wish there were more. And honestly, uh -huh. I'm, I'm trying to, to make some myself to get out there. I'm actually working on a book right now that literally oh, wow. the purpose of it is to be an overview of post-production sound, since it's what I know best. Yes. Uh, but in terms of actually getting exposed to it and learning, there's nothing better than learning on the job. You know, I, I did my various classes and whatnot. I got Pro Tools certified. I did the UCLA Recording Engineering Certificate. But I probably learned 10% of what I needed there and 90% on the job. And the number one step I took that made the difference was getting that initial internship okay. at a post-production sound facility and working my way up. Uh, so, I mean, interning really is the best bet and or any kind of entry-level job in the transfer department. Can you explain what the transfer department is? Absolutely. So that that's probably the... Most underrated and most important part of a post-production sound facility is the transfer department. As the name implies, they're transferring elements both in and out. They are the alpha and the omega of post-sound. Okay, it starts with them <laughs> and everything ends with them. So okay. that initial sound turnover, we call it, when the picture department is going to give you that final lock of picture and all the audio elements, transfer is going to ingest that initial delivery and they're gonna get it to everybody who needs it. Then when the show's all done and I've finished my job and I get to go home, they still are responsible for final layback where they take the results of my work, the final mix, and mm -hmm. they lay it back to the picture. They place it back, one more review pass, make sure everything's in sync, everything's in spec, there are no technical glitches or errors, and then they deliver that on to network for television or to the distribution company for the film. So transfer, wow, okay. you're, you're kind of, you're at both ends of the whole process and you're exposed to it throughout. And so that's why it's so valuable as a, as a position to learn every aspect of how it's done and really understand the fundamentals because you're doing those most important initial and final tasks. Okay, that makes sense. And now if someone's interested in getting into a career of um, audio engineering for, let's just say television, what would be the best route to get into, um, would you pick either or are you going to pick to be on the on location team or the post-production team or what's the best way to get your foot in the door? Yeah, absolutely. So each has to, you know, it's a decision that you definitely want to make with a, a sense to a longer term objective because starting okay. on one path very much branches away from the other. So if you head down the, the production sound path, you are very much detached from post sound and vice versa. 
You know, I personally have never professionally, now certainly student films and whatnot, but never professionally worked as a production sound person in any capacity. And okay, I okay. work with production sound people who deliver me stuff who have never worked in post sound in any capacity oh because they goodness, really yeah. diverge quite distinctly. So if you're into... Uh, you know, getting your, your hands dirty and being on set and being around the actors and being on location, then you definitely want to pursue the, the production sound route. That's great. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's all, you know, that all starts by, again, trying to get yourself in the door at entry level, uh, either interning or post-PAing is the first thing. So post-production assistant. That I'm, I'm sorry, production assistant for, oh, for okay. just the, the yeah. main, there's, there's the post PAs with the picture department, sorry. With the main filming or taping of the TV show, there is the production assistant. That's your entry level yeah. job there. Literally. And so anyone can go into that, not just, um, uh, well, my, if you're a sound engineer, are you going to want to apply also for these production assistant jobs? If you're looking to genuinely get your foot in the door with a cold call, absolutely. That's the place to start. And you can branch from there to anywhere. I mean, you okay. can start as a, as a PA and end up as the director. You can start as a PA and end up as the lead writer. Uh, or you can start as a PA and end up as the sound mixer. I'll, you know, but that's still where you're probably going to get yourself in. And, you know, mm. unfortunately, it's it's entry-level kind of menial stuff. It's not super yep. exciting. You know, you might literally be getting people's coffee or helping set up chairs. But whatever, you're there. You know, and once yeah, you're there, no, you perfect. express to people your interest and what you want to do. And when you demonstrate, you know, uh, competence, positive attitude, and the ability to show up on time and do what's asked of you, you move along very quickly. You tend not to have to PA for too long. Okay. Uh, and from there, you you know, you kind of say, "Hey, sound department, this is what I'm into." And the next step would be an audio assistant. So if they're like, mm -hmm. "Hey, you seem like you know what's up, and we could use another audio assistant," let me show you the basics, and they'll show you, you know. Laying the cabling, keeping track of the gear, um, helping get the boom ops, what they need, and all that good stuff. And then from there, after you've done some work as an audio assistant, you could potentially move on to boom operator or to the uh, set mixer, potentially. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a little wild to get to that point because that's the head of the, the production sound department. But nevertheless, that's the path. Um, but again, that, that's a path unto itself. There, there is yes, no connecting exactly. branch at all. Yeah from production sound mixer into post sound and vice versa. I couldn't go waltz over to set right now and convince anyone that I should be the production mixer just as much as your average production mixer couldn't come onto the dub stage, sit down at the console and say, look, I know how to mix the film. You know, yeah. people are going to be like, well, maybe, but what's your experience? Exactly. I mean, exactly. Like, All right, I got none in production. <laughs> Sorry. That's a lot of great information. So for someone like me, let's just say I'm moving on to my next step, but I have a family and two kids, yep. and so if I try to go to a production um, assistant job, that's probably not going to be able to take care of my family and live no. in L.A. No. And I'm not going to be able to stop, uh, jump that step and try to get into a sound mixer job because I haven't gone through the steps. It's going to be harder for certain. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, obviously, as, as it's the, the old adage in everything when it comes to employment, it's who you know, yeah, to some extent. You know, nepotism gets you certain benefits, yeah. but it's not required, <laughs> obviously. And it's it's also, yeah, I mean, what, what you're driving at is, yeah, that, that's a tough nut to crack. Whereas yep. post-sound is absolutely yeah, so, more, yeah. more plausible, especially uh, if you can manage to get into the union. Uh, that's okay, the real so. key. Can we go through, so we went through a quick... Um, step-by-step uh, step on how to progress in the production, audio production side of the thing for the onset location. Sure. Now let's move over to the post-production side. Can you start over? Like what's the entry and like move your way on up? 
So probably the best way is my personal example. Uh, that's because I, I can I can speak to that since I yep. have that experience. Uh, so you know again I had that initial background in in computer engineering and, and network engineering and computer support, but that wasn't vital. Uh, but I parlayed into an internship at a post-production sound facility that specialized in TV sound. And so when I was interning, I was primarily interning with the transfer department. And so, you know, I had the background in Pro Tools, which is pretty important. You want to do that, but anybody can do that. Um, and they would show me the post-production tasks that I couldn't possibly be exposed to on my own, like how to operate the tape decks, which of course now are going the way of the dodo bird, but at the time they were the thing. <laughs> uh, concepts such as um, sync reference and patch bays and signal flow and routing and all of those things I was exposed to at the transfer department interning. And okay. when a position opened up, they hired me on and taught me more through that position. What was your first position title? Uh, tra transfer operator. I mean, that oh. was it. Yeah, I was. There wasn't much of a formal title. Oh, okay. um, in terms of union classification, the official title is sound services person. Wonderfully descriptive and important sounding. Uh, but yeah, that's kind of your entry level is your sound services person, and that's kind of what you're doing. You're, you're helping ingest elements from the picture department and move them along to the people who need them in the rest of the post sound process. So I did that. Uh, I was working in the transfer department for a while, and, you know, I was learning on the job. And, of course, the facility had, at the time, five, four mixed stages, and then they got a second location with two more mixed stages, and long story. But I had the opportunity working second shift. I would come in at 3 p.m. and work till midnight. Uh, I would have the opportunity, after the, the stages would wrap, to get hands-on time on the mixed stages on my own and practice and learn, as well okay. as having to, you know, do transfer responsibilities. If there were technical glitches with a mix... Someone would say, hey, there was a dropout at this time code. I need you to open up the mix, fix the dropout, and re-output. So there was hands-on time on the mix stage that I was getting. Mm -hmm. um, the next step that I was able to find my way into after getting that practice and working on my own on independent films and whatnot, I was able to mix M&Es at night. So M&E, music and effects mix. So th this is a really essential concept for how you want to kind of move along in the post-sound world. Um, music and effects mixes are what they sound like. It's when you've got the mix of the show, you remove the dialogue completely, and with it goes all of that incidental sound that got picked up on set that makes it convincing and realistic. And you're doing it because you're going to dub it in a foreign language, the Spanish version, Japanese, French, German, whatever. Uh, but when they dub in a foreign language, obviously everyone knows the mouths don't match up, but they still want it to feel as believable as possible. So they have someone come in and remix all of the Foley and try to salvage as much production sound as they can to create this music and effects mix that can very easily be dubbed on top of in a foreign language and sound as convincing as possible. And so obviously mm -hmm. it's nowhere near as important as the main mix yeah. because all you're doing is blending some Foley together and maybe salvaging some production audio that didn't have dialogue on top of it. But it's a mixing job. And yeah. so I was able to yeah. work on that. I do M&E mixes. And is that the title just an M&E mixer for that job? Mm -hmm, exactly right. And in fact, there are people who are also career M&E mixers. That's what they do. Music and effects mixes. And that's great. You know, it's, it's fun. It's a little lower stress because you don't have people breathing down your neck about it. Um, you know, some people thrive off of that interplay with clients. Other people get really nervous when there's someone behind them telling them what to do and it's not a great fit. So for some folks, an M&E mixer is a great gig. Um, mm -hmm. At that same time, I could have branched a different path, and a lot of people did. A lot of people would branch from that transfer division and go over to dialogue editing or sound effects editing. Uh, okay, okay. 
And so that would be almost a, a direct move straight over where someone would say, okay, you know, I don't want to be in that, you know, nerve wracking position on the mix stage where everyone's telling me what to do when I have to make everybody happy. I, I'm cool. I'm more comfortable working on my own. I like the idea that I can work from home, set my own hours, etc. I want to do sound editing, either effects or dialogue. Almost every effects and dialogue editor today on planet Earth works from home. That's oh, just okay. the facts now because you can do it. You can literally do just as good a job on the beach on your laptop as you could in an edit uh, bay. Okay. Not entirely, but practically. Yeah. So a lot of sound editors work remotely and they could, you know, at that level of your experience out of the transfer department, you could move over to that job. Uh, and that, of course, is a kind of a path unto itself. That's it. Effects editor, dialogue editor, that's the kind of, that's where that goes. You could kind of move back from there if you have a managerial capacity into the post-production sound supervisor if you want to. And so okay. that person is the manager of the team in post-sound. So, for instance, my post-sound team on NCISLA is me and one other mixer. We're the main mixers. So that's two of us. We mm -hmm. have a dialogue editor, an ADR supervisor and editor, sound effects editor, mm -hmm. Foley cure, backgrounds mm -hmm. editor, two Foley walkers. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's us. So that's nine folks right there that the post-sound supervisor is managing. Yep. So you're a manager of that team. Okay, making sure they each get their appropriate thing ready to go at the right time. You got yeah. it. And okay. shepherding everything through the process, making sure that you understand what the client needs or wants for any aspect of the show, helping to make sure that the different people are getting it done correctly. The sound effects editor, do you understand how they want this crazy, unrealistic machine to sound? Do you have the right effects? If you don't, how can we get them? Um, yeah. Okay, dialogue editor, where are your problem lines? Can we find alternate takes that sound cleaner? If we can't, make sure the ADR supervisor is cueing the ADR. Is the talent coming in for the ADR? Are they behaving? Are they doing the lines like they're supposed to? Or are they complaining and saying, my character would never say that <laughs> and refusing to do it? It happens way too much. Yeah. Uh, and all of that stuff, that, that's the sound supervisor's job. Now, again, you have to have a proclivity for management and you have to enjoy all of that stuff. I am not a manager. I'm not okay. good at that. I like the creative stuff. The sound supervisor, he's not doing all the technical little things. He's making sure everyone else is doing all the little technical. You got it. Absolutely. Things. And okay. in fact, that, that can go two different ways. It can go a couple different ways. I know a few supervising sound editors, you know, post-sound supervisors who do absolutely have some hands-on. They assemble the dialogue. They work with the, the tracks. They, they help facilitate stuff with uh, Pro Tools. They might even cue the Foley and all of that. And I know okay. some others who literally show up to the mix with a pad of paper and a pencil. No laptop, no tech. I'm a manager. I'm bringing, you know, I'm overseeing everything. I don't need to even know what that button does over there. I know that you know what it does, and I need you to do it for me, please. Thank you. <laughs> and so those are different schools of thought. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> and so you can kind of go both ways. You can go either, either way if you want. Um, but that's still a managerial role. And then, yeah. you know, last, uh, after that, there, there's us, the re-recording mixers. So after the sound supervisor and the editors have figured out everything about what they need to do to put all the elements together, they give them to us, and we actually put them up on the mix stage. And can you explain what a mix stage is? Absolutely. So, so um, the dub stage, the mix stage, uh, a couple different terms basically means the same thing. Essentially, it is a an acoustically designed workspace that mimics a small movie theater where okay. people can come in and put all the sound together and experiencing it 
experience it in a controlled environment with hopefully the, the ideal possible circumstances for reproduction so that they can do the best possible job of blending everything together and making sure it's super clean and sounds good. So okay. we call it a mixed stage, but it's not literally a stage like a theater stage. It's just a term yeah. we use for the room where we do the It's mix. a really, really big room. If you Google image it, it looks like a pretty cool room. And and it can run the gamut. I mean, I've, I work in mixed stages that are literally 10 feet by 12 feet. And okay. I've worked in mixed stages that are probably 80 feet by 100 feet. And the, the, the difference largely is motivated by the scope of the project that you're working on and therefore the mm -hmm. budget that they have to pony up. If I'm doing an obscure cable channel reality show, I may literally mix it in my home mix stage, my home studio, which is 12 yeah. feet by 16 feet. That's where I am right now. That's it. Uh, when I'm working on uh, NCIS Los Angeles, we're in a pretty big room. It's, it's probably, you know, 40 feet by 80 feet are the main dimensions, somewhere around there. Pretty decent size. If, if I were to have the great fortune ever to work on a big blockbuster feature film, I could mm -hmm. be at like the Cary Grant Theater at Sony. That's a 300-seat theater. It literally is a movie theater that also has a mix console about two-thirds of the way into the room where the mixers work. But it literally has rows of seats in front of it where they could bring in an audience if they want to experience it. Yeah, so there, there's the mixed stage is is a term that we use loosely, but it, it can run that full range. Okay, that makes complete sense. And so now, uh, tell us a little bit about like the details of what you do once you receive um, all the elements that you're ready to mix together. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I primarily am when I, when I'm working with a partner when I'm on an, on an hour long drama. There's usually two of us mixing because a division of labor helps to move things along faster. Yeah. I take care of the dialogue and music, and my mix partner takes care of the sound effects, backgrounds, and foley. At the same time? Yes. However, okay. when we're first starting to work, that there are, there's plenty of mixed teams out there, and every pair of people has a different interaction and a different flow that they've developed. Our flow is one mm. that I kind of inherited when I came on to NCIS LA. I came into that show when... Uh, the effects mixer at the time was unable to come in. There was an issue, and someone needed to fill in like that. I right literally away. got the call at 9 a.m. one day. Hey, can you be here for a 10 a.m. start? Yes. The answer is always oh, okay. yes. yes. Uh, <laughs> so I dashed in, and I was the effects mixer. And the dialogue mixer at that time, the way he liked to work, the, he, so he was the lead chair, I was the effects chair. The way he liked to work is he would do the first, let's say, two-thirds of the day under headphones. Focusing okay. exclusively on the dialogue and music on his own system. And I would work playing through the speakers in the room, focusing exclusively on the backgrounds, effects, and foley. And then by about two or three in the afternoon, we would link up and run everything through together and adjust together against each other's elements as we go. Ah, okay, and so I kind of retained that workflow. But now I'm the one in the, the dialogue chair wearing the headphones for the first little bit of the day, working on my first pass. And then uh, my, uh, my partner, Jamie, he's working on effects. Uh, in the speakers, and about two-thirds of the way through day one, uh, I've got my first pass done. We'll put it all together, and we'll run through it together and see how everything is working and make adjustments. Okay, so you're putting the dialogue and music together. What are you looking to do to the dialogue and music? What kind of processing are you using or going sure. to, like, EQ and whatnot? Okay, like, yeah, You don't absolutely. have to be, like, detailed, just like an overview. Totally, yeah. I won't, I won't drive too deep in the weeds, but I'll give you the most important stuff. Uh, so for me, of course, my my... Experience. My work experience is primarily television. It's broadcast, and we have broadcast okay. specs that we need to okay, hit. Okay. Okay. So we have requirements for average level of the dialogue loudness uh, that were imposed after the Calm Act got passed 
10 years ago now or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, Commercial Audio Loudness Mitigation Act, I think is what it stood for. It was yeah. this congressional... Mm-hmm. Everyone hated the fact that in between... Uh, acts of the show, the commercials would come on and they're blaring loud. And then the show was super quiet and you're turning it up. And then it goes to the commercial break and suddenly they're loud. So they passed this law where everything had to hit a spec. It didn't quite work out. We still have that problem Mm -hmm. to some extent, but we got a spec that we have to work to. So Mm -hmm. my, my first job really is to get the dialogue to play nicely and evenly to that specification to that loudness spec. And not with a bullet, not 100% flawless. Uh, I want some dynamic and I want to have some impact with the performance, but it's a guideline. So that's my first first responsibility really is to get that dialogue to more or less sit at that level. Okay, so you just do dialogue only? Are you listening to the music at the same time or just the dialogue? I tend not to. I know some mixers who do. I know some mixers who like to keep the music track going the whole time because what the music informs you of is how many of the little blemishes and whatnot from the production sound you can get away with since the music's going to cover them up anyway. Uh, okay. I prefer to hear all that original and, and uncovered so that I know where all the bodies are buried, quote-unquote. I know yeah. where all the issues are and what the challenges may or may not be. And then when the music comes in, maybe I'll be pleasantly surprised that it helps cover up some stuff and I'm in good shape. So I work with the dialogue only on my first pass, and then I do a separate pass where I put the music in on top, and I'll often find that the dialogue needs to adjust at that point. Um, But again, that first pass is really get that dialogue clear and intelligible and that broadcast spec. Okay, do you do any noise reduction and EQing at that part, or was that from the dialogue editor? Yeah, and so that's a good point. That's a great question because... Historically, really dramatic noise reduction got sent out to specialists. There were guys who had the the big secret noise reduction systems <laughs> that they wouldn't tell you how to operate, and they were really expensive to hire <laughs> these guys. And and they would do a noise reduction pass and then give it to the mix stage. Then, more recently, it evolved that, okay, look, we got some pretty fancy and affordable tools these days with Isotope RX and Akon mm-hmm. Digital's got some stuff and even Waves and all, all these different noise reduction packages. Look, we can all do this now. So the re-recording mixer has inherited a lot of that responsibility. But as is always the case, people always want things done faster and cheaper. Uh, some of that responsibility has now shifted to the dialogue editor. And so I absolutely okay. do look to my dialogue editors to do some noise reduction work for me, at least the big obvious stuff that won't really impact the quality or at least has to be done no matter what. So they're going to remove major clunks, buzzes and hums. Uh, they're going to try at least a light pass of broadband noise reduction. But then they'll leave they'll leave me room. They'll leave me wiggle room. Okay. Okay. And I'll do noise reduction as part of my pass. Absolutely. It's my my screen and pro tools has probably eight isotope plugins up at any given time and I spend maybe 50% of my time in Pro Tools and 50% of my time in Isotope RX, the audio editor app. It's that integral to what I do these days. So yeah, noise reduction is essential for the re-recording mixer, but we are looking to our dialogue editors more and more to do at least the more straightforward tasks. Okay, that makes sense. And then after that, you'll also do some uh, like dynamic processing and EQing at all? Yep, definitely. So every single track in my session has some basic EQ and compression going on. Always, always. So the, the, the most straightforward EQ thing, uh, they call it filtering on, on the plugs and, and colloquially, uh, it's kind of EQ, where you just roll off the lowest low frequencies and the highest high frequencies. Human yep. voice really doesn't have anything meaningful below 100 hertz. So yep. everything from 100 hertz and down, I'm removing. 
And from maybe about like 12 to 14K and up, I'm also probably removing because there's not too much of value up there. Certainly not for television broadcast. Nothing where you need that level of articulation when someone's at home in their living room watching your TV show. No big deal. For a feature <laughs> film, they might they might be aghast at the fact that I'm rolling off everything above 14K or 12K. It might be like, <laughs> oh, what are you doing? But for TV, it's fine. Uh, then also absolutely some compression. Not a ton, but some. Uh, and again, there, there's so much personal preference and people have their own beliefs and voodoo and dogma and everything else about compression. But I definitely do a little bit on every track. Not a lot, a little. I like to mainly control the d dynamics of the mix with the volume fader. I feel like, look, there's a reason why the fader is the biggest thing on the console. It's because that's where we should spend the most of our time because it's the most useful tool. So when I need to be concerned with the dynamic of a performance, I'm mainly going to get there with the volume fader. Okay, and do some automation? Tons of automation and constantly. Okay, yeah. Okay, that's perfect. And then when you uh, layer in the music, do you ad adjust the music volume at all? Or you constantly. let them... Oh, okay, okay. Yep, I'm ri I ride the music around the dialogue the whole uh, way. Uh, okay. Very, very rarely do I lay a cue in and let it sit at, at a fixed level. The music that I leave sit playing at a fixed level will be the, the main title, because, look, we're done, it's good, and it just plays by itself. Cool, the main title music, awesome. End credit music, sure. Uh, but then also something we call source cues. Don't know if you're familiar <laughs> with the concept of source versus score or diegetic versus non-diegetic music. Um, I, yeah, I know the... So so source and score. So score obviously is, you know, the orchestral stuff playing on top for emotional, you know, intent. And then source is anything playing in the scene that the characters are aware of. Uh, yeah. So music on the radio, the TV in the background, whatever that might be, uh, the, the boombox playing at the gym. And so that source music, that's stuff that I'll often just set at one level and leave because okay, the idea okay. is to set it to establish it at a given level for the scene and then that's how it plays but even then sometimes it may move around but often the source music I'll just set it and leave it but score I'm just I'm constantly riding at least a mm. little bit up and down depending on the moments in the show or what the dialogue is doing or what the effects are doing etc so the music, does someone compose uh, music for each episode? Absolutely. Yep. Oh, wow. And that's a heck of a, that's an awesome job if you can get it. And that that requires, like, that's a whole other world of, of brilliance <laughs> and expertise that I couldn't even aspire to. You know, people who are good composers, you know, they were, yeah. they were like playing Mozart at age four, you know. Like, okay. they, they've been, music's in their blood. They've been doing it their whole lives. They probably, you know, played in band in high school and, you know, this and that went to college for it. Uh, they, you know, had some expertise in a variety of instruments and so on. And they went that path. And that's a totally separate path that exists, okay. which is awesome, but totally separate. Where yeah. composers will hire assistants to work with them. And they will, you know, eventually work up and be composers themselves. Yep. And also, they will work in parallel with the music editing team. So the music okay. editors are the people whose job it is, you know, the, the composer, they're artistic and brilliant and beautiful and not necessarily technically oriented. They don't yeah. necessarily think about making sure that it falls from this frame to that frame or that, you know, it has this exact breakdown of the stems or whatever it might be technical. So they turn to their music editor to help them with the technical aspects. And also, you know, can someone possibly compose 42 minutes of score every week for every episode of every show? Of course not. So there's a certain amount <laughs> okay, of, of reuse. 
And also yeah. that's intentional. You'll notice any TV show you see, even any movie you see, will have themes that come and, you know, are played more than once. I mean, you, you can just think of like the, the Star Wars theme or anything like that. Any, any musical theme you can think of that'll have a refrain that'll come over and over again. And that's first by intent to help, you know, enforce the, 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 the brand essentially of what you're watching. But also it makes life a little easier for the composer. Yeah. So music yeah. editors will lay in, you know, they'll work with the composer and the composer says, okay, it's the such and such action cue from here to here. Or it's the investigative cue from here to here. And the music editor will be like, gotcha, I know what you need. I have it in the library. You wrote that stuff for season two. It's season six now. I know what we need to do. I plop it in. Edit it a little bit different so that it matches this two minutes of length rather than the four minutes that it used to be, and off we go. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. So the music editors do all that after getting the stuff from the composer, and they give it to me. Uh, okay. And and music editors can do some pretty impressive stuff on the fly. You know, the, the, the producer will be in the playback and say, you know what, that, that cue is too whimsical or too com comedic for this moment. This is more serious. Can you give me something else? They'll dive into that bag of tricks that they have, that collection of cues from the composer, and they'll whip up something unique to that aspect of the show and send it to me. And the producer will say, yep, there you go. That's it. Or no, just tweak this or that. But yeah, right on the fly, they'll essentially craft new music. Okay, that's great. And then now your partner, he is also considered a re-recording mixer? Yes, absolutely. Okay, and he does the Foley... The um the backgrounds uh, and the sound effects. And the sound effects. Yep. Okay. Yeah, it's basically so he, all the effects. Okay. And he's going through, is he doing EQ and processing and all that too, or just setting levels? Yep, absolutely as needed. Okay. He'll definitely be doing that. So his first pass will probably be to set all the backgrounds, right? All your ambiences, your your room tones, your distant city noise, your di um, generic crowd, walla, uh, whatever that might be. And that may need some EQing. Uh, I'm sure you can imagine, I'm sure you've encountered where you'll record audio outside near a busy street and there's some rumble and it's maybe not super desirable to have all that rumbly stuff in the final mix. So he'll be EQing the rumble out of certain tracks and whatnot. Or perhaps okay. maybe um, we need to make a track of Walla for people in a restaurant less intelligible. So he'll roll off some of the high end and, you know, make it a little more muffled. Uh, so there's some EQ going on there. Uh, he's also responsible for the hard effects, of course. That's the really exciting stuff. Gunshots, explodes, okay. swooshes, yeah. all of that. And there may be EQ and compression there as well. Certainly that stuff may dig into the limiters. So we have maximum peak that we can deliver. And oftentimes the producer's like, louder, more. And so <laughs> explosions and gunshots and whatnot often push into the limiters. And so that's, that's hard compression. That's not uncommon. Yeah. Uh, and then Foley. Foley is... Foley's awesome. I love Foley. Uh, so that's that's human-motivated sounds other than dialogue that need to be re recreated by Foley artists on a Foley recording stage. Uh, and so hand pats, footsteps, props, etc. And so he'll be mixing all that stuff, and that can potentially have a lot of need for EQ and compression. The footsteps could be really dynamic, sometimes barely audible, other times super loud and clacky. Um... Again, there could be rumble on things. They could be recording, you know, the movement of somebody's duffel bag too close to the mic, and it got a bunch of rumble, and he'll EQ that off. So, yeah, a lot of processing there. Oh, okay. Wow. that There are so many moving parts here, but I Oh, think, yeah, it's it's massive. Yeah. yeah. No, but this is going to be so helpful for everyone listening. Like, for me, I, I can finally wrap my head around it. I can visualize it and, like, everything that's going on. Cool. And then I can be like, okay, if I'm interested in a certain aspect, I'm kind of know what to do and how to get my way up there into that certain role. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, again, to, to your point earlier that I wanted to mention, you know, you, you made 
a great point that I also very much considered, and that is, you know, it's it's awesome to want to pursue something artistic and creative and be on set and all of that, but real life doesn't afford the opportunity to work 16-hour days, six days a week for too many people. Post-production, mostly it's nine-hour days in an air-conditioned environment, somewhere (laughs) controlled. Sometimes you're working at home, and it's much more manageable just from a life perspective. And so that was very appealing to me. That might be appealing to people like me as well, who we already have a wife and kids, and we're still looking to get into the industry. Absolutely, yeah, same here. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've got a wife and a young daughter, and it, life is it's already challenging enough when I have a long yep. mixed day. Uh, I do one show where the days are often 10 or 12 hours just because it's very, very busy, and those are hard days. But that's not every time. Uh, you know, there are other shows where I'm done early every time by an hour or so, and that's great. Uh, but the standard working day for post sound, it's still longer than it ought to be. Uh, but it's, it's 9am to 7pm with an hour lunch. That's our standard work day. Okay. Wow. Now, what company do you work for? So right now, after Larson collapsed a couple, about a year or so ago, I have now officially gone freelance and, uh, which is not uncommon at all for a re-recording mixer. So I, I work at different places depending on the show. I do NCIS LA at Deluxe Audio. I do MacGyver for Warner Brothers. I do um, oh. No Activity over at Formosa Group. Um, I'm trying to get something together with uh, Aura Sound and Color on another show. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's quite common. I, I do certain things just from my home studio. I've got a game show hopefully coming up soon that I'll do entirely from home. Oh, wow. Um, so that's just the nature of the beast for me right now. And how do you get into those roles? Do you reach out to these various companies? And I heard you said something about the, um, uh, what's it called? The Oh, the union. Oh, yeah, the union. Yes. Yeah. So can you like just talk about, like, so you have these different companies. Do you just reach out to them and be like, I want to be a re-recording mixer, but you're also part of a union? What does that mean? Yeah, so uh, union membership is pretty essential for post-production sound, in my opinion. Uh, Obviously, it's not literally required at all. There are non-union shops, but there are union shops. Uh, So the Editors Guild, editorsguild.com, part of IATSE. We're IATSE Local 700. We are the Editors Guild, and that covers picture editors, sound editors, sound mixers, audio engineers, and a couple other related roles that are all in post-production. We're the Editors Guild. I personally am a big proponent of unions and what they, what benefit they provide to people. I know that for whatever reason, that's a political thing. Okay. I don't want to get into any of that, whatever. Okay. But suffice to say, I support the union and what it does for us because they guarantee uh, minimum safe working conditions, minimum pay rates, um, guarantee overtime when we're forced to work certain hours, et cetera, et cetera. So the point of all that is that the majority of the post-production sound facilities that are desirable to work at are Mm -hmm. union signatory facilities. And that means that they have officially essentially partnered with the union and agreed to support its rules and its members and therefore are restricted to only hiring people who are members of the union. So we can only hire union members, which also, by the way, is, from their perspective, a bit of a way to cut the wheat from the chaff. They know they have a certain quality of person that they're hiring if someone's already a member of the Editors Guild. And 
uh, they follow those rules. And so if we okay. work past that nine to seven, they're paying us overtime. If we work more than six hours without a break, we get meal penalty, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. No, that makes complete sense. So no, union membership is, is really vital, and it's what it kind of allows you to move around town to the different facilities that are desirable to work at. That said, there are some that are staunchly non-union and intentionally so. Uh, the, the main one I can think of is Levels Audio in Hollywood. They're very explicitly a non-union facility, and they are primarily unscripted mixing. So... American Idol, um, game shows, uh, America's Got Talent, those kinds of things. They mix at Levels Audio, and they're, they're very much a non-union shop, proud to be, and that's fine for them. And mm -hmm. so they're kind of excluded from getting too much scripted content because they're non-union, but also I'm kind of excluded from working for them because I don't really want to work in that non-union environment if I don't have to. Okay, that makes sense. And then for these companies that you're reaching out to, do you reach out to them um, personally? So it's all like we said before, unfortunately, the, the toughest aspect of what I do is it's all who you know, and you're only as good as the last thing you did and who you did it with. Uh, so the majority of the work I get is through people I've worked with prior. Uh, okay. And so that's a challenge. You know, there, there's a certain limitation there. Obviously, in an ideal world, one becomes staff at a facility. And I was staff at Larson for a long time, which was great. And so they brought the work oh, in. Yeah. They suggested a mixer to a given show. If the show liked that person, there you went. If the show didn't like that person, they had a stable of other people. And so you can see that afforded me both sides of that opportunity. On the one yeah. hand, sometimes... Uh, a show would decide they didn't want to work with me for whatever reason. On the other hand, a show decided they didn't want to work with someone else, but they did want to work with me. And so mm -hmm. opportunities would come that way. Uh, mm -hmm. Now it's a little okay. harder for certain. Um, and so ideally, one would be staff at a post-sound facility where that's exclusively where they work. And there are folks who that's their deal. Um, okay. But that's not all of us by any means. So it's very no, much a, a, a who do I who have I worked with before and um, certainly a certain amount of um, networking and, you know, cold calling and all of that. And, hey, you know, online uh, social media, you know, a lot of people these yeah. days get work in post-production through friends and friends of friends on LinkedIn and Facebook. That's just the reality. Okay. No, that's great. That's a lot of wonderful information. I have learned so much and I'm sure everyone listening right now, their heads are probably like, wow, I had no idea that existed in the audio <laughs> world, like whatever's happening in LA. But no, that's that's awesome. Cool. And now you told me you're writing a book. Can you tell me a little about things that you're developing and if you have a website, like anywhere to direct people to learn more about you? Yeah, sure. So um, my, my company is Park Street Post, parkstreetpost.com. Uh, that's me and my wife. We're incorporated. She is a TV editor, a picture editor, primarily game shows, and I'm a re-recording mixer. And uh, that's our website where we've got, you know, information about us. And I've also got about 10 years experience teaching um, intro to digital audio and Pro Tools at Los Angeles Mission College. And I did that for a long time kind of as a essentially a part-time gig. Once a week, I would teach a class. Uh, and it was great. Um, but due to various conflicts with pilot season and with other shows, eventually that became uh, untenable for me to continue doing. But I enjoyed that. I liked teaching and I liked communicating about this stuff and I like informing people about what's out there. And I feel like there is, there's so much info if you want to be a rock star, you know? Yeah. You can learn anything you possibly want to know about how to play guitar, how to record guitar, record vocals, EQ them, compress them, you know, be a producer, all that stuff. There's next to nothing about sound for picture out there. 
so limited. And so I thought, well, geez, I ought to help contribute to the resources that are available to people. So I've been working on this, this short book that is basically like our conversation today. It's an overview of post-production sound where I just take you through with a little bit more detail than we've had the time for uh, all of the roles that exist in the entirety of the post-production sound process from once they're done on set all the way through to the final show going to the movie theater or to the broadcast network and every step of the process. And I'm pretty close to having it done and I was going to put it out through that website, Park Street Post, once I have it done and uh, you know, hopefully people are interested. Yo, yeah, I will definitely pick up a copy once that's out. That awesome. sounds amazing. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much, Alexi, for coming on the show today. I've learned so much, and I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks a lot for having me. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, stay tuned for another wonderful interview next week. All right, everyone. Peace out. Bye. Bye.